Okay, so we're back to cracks in postmodernity with Joe Anabinet, who is the founder of St. Michael Barbell Club. Um, so, Joe, we found each other on Instagram a yeah. couple months ago. Um, and we've been talking back and forth. Um, I've been very interested in the stuff you've posted, but also the conversations we've had. So just tell everyone a little bit of your background story and you know how you ended up founding the gym. Okay. Uh, thanks, Stephen, for having me on the podcast. I'm a huge fan. I listen to Cracks and Pomo religiously, liturgically oh. even. So thank <laughs> you for uh, bringing me on. Great so, so I grew up in a microscopic small town in Iowa. Uh, population of about 300. Uh, my parents' house that we grew up in was 10 feet from a cornfield. Um, uh, it was kind of a dead small town. So in, in those kinds of small towns, you either work on a farm or you drive however many miles to the nearest town for work. And that's what my dad did. Uh, he still drives to this day, 25 miles both ways to work at Red Lobster. Um, my uh, parents had six children. So that puts us pretty firmly in the working class bracket. Um, we grew up in an evangelical fundamentalist kind of Christian church, you know, memorizing Bible verses, old timey hymns, uh, chick tracks, that kind of stuff. Uh, I was homeschooled until sixth grade. And uh, when I first went to public school and got internet access when I was about 11 or 12, it was in for a big shock. Um, I uh, started learning about other world religions, about theory of evolution and geology and that kind of stuff. And I suddenly had all these questions that my uh, childhood faith was not really able to answer, that my parents weren't really equipped to answer. And so against my will, I became an atheist. Um, and because I'm a millennial, and I'm, I'm therefore also a huge narcissist. And so immediately, when I'm about 13, 14, I start posting all these things on my social media, all these uh, little essays about being an atheist and why I don't believe in God and so on. And suddenly all these people start coming out of the woodwork with positive affirmations, like, man, you're so brave. You tell, you tell those Christians, you know? And so I go from being an unwilling atheist to this is my identity. This is who I am. You know, I'm an atheist. This is, that's what makes me who I am. And so I start to build these walls of unbelief and very soon uh, I get sucked into the new atheist movement. And so when I'm go to college, I join the uh, atheist student organization. And this is kind of a relic of the 2000s. It's not really a thing anymore, but mm. back then kind of the heyday of new atheism, you know, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and all those guys were all really popular. Um, that's uh, when I went to college and I joined the atheist group. Um, I could talk all day about all the terrible stuff we did. Uh, it really uh, kind of a cringe time in my life. Um, we, uh, the, uh, we did a lot of things that were just kind of mean spirited and ultimately were uh, just very cruel to religious people. And, um, you know, we wrote terrible things all over campus with sidewalk chalk and, uh, caused a big uh, brawl on uh, campus over that. Um, the government of Egypt declared a fatwa against our student group. It was really ridiculous. Um, so after a couple of years screwing around with that group, um, basically making a total jackass out of myself, um, I uh, kind of have a uh, falling away from atheism. Um, I think what brought me into atheism was the, the positive affirmation. You know, it was having these people who were older than me, who I thought were, you know, smarter than me, telling me that I was doing a great job, that I was part of something really important. And then 
after being involved in it for a while, I realized that I didn't really fit in. I was kind of a misfit because all these guys in this, in the atheist group with me are, uh, you know, a lot of them are kind of bougie, you know, my, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a college professor. Mm-hmm. And, and so you kind of get this sense that, you know, they don't hate Christianity so much as they hate people like me, people like my mom and dad, people like all the small town folks I grew up with who, uh, in spite of all this, I never really had any bad blood towards. And so I kind of fell away from atheism. And at the same time, I kind of fell away from science. So like, uh, like, uh, all new atheists, I also thought I was a scientist. So I, uh, decided that I wanted to make research into a career. So after my undergraduate, which was in philosophy, I talked my way into this research position at the university of Minnesota in a, uh, neuroscience laboratory and it was a fun gig it was a great professor but i learned from that job that uh science is fake and that uh, i didn't want to be a scientist um just uh, all day long you know spreadsheets and doing the same experiments over and over again and i kind of had this realization that that is not really what i wanted to be doing with my life you know going into my 20s um the prospect of going to school for 10 more years and being an adjunct professor after that just sounded really miserable. So I took my credits and turned it into a second bachelor's degree in psychology. And then I dropped out of college. And um, my wife and I at the time decided to start our family. Um, So falling away from atheism and from science, I uh, decided to go the complete opposite direction and got into neo-paganism and the occult, which is an equally, equally cringe, if not more cringe chapter of my life than uh, being a new atheist. But um, basically, I think I had a lot of baggage with Christianity where I thought, you know, okay, I can I can maybe believe in God. But, uh, you know, I'm too smart to be a Christian. So I'm going to look into uh, look into some of this goofy stuff over here. And I dabbled with that for a couple years. And it was fun. And uh, I was really influenced by characters like uh, Nietzsche, and also by the traditionalist school, I was really into alchemy and Greek philosophy and things Mm -hmm. like that. But eventually you kind of reach a spiritual dead end there because I really wanted to actually worship God and a lot of neo-paganism and the occult is more about, uh, you know, how do I come up with a super special religion just for me that fits all of my personal quirks. And I started to see that um, I wasn't really going to find what I was looking for playing around with that stuff. And further, at this point, I had a uh, child and I'm thinking to myself, all right, at some point I got to make friends with other families and all these guys who are doing neo-paganism with me, they're all kind of, you know, they're, I, I wouldn't uh, leave my kid alone with them for five minutes. So backing away from that and under the influence of my godfather, who is a uh, religions professor and who is a, um, he was also into perennialism and he's a former Buddhist and he, so he's really well uh, traveled. And so he encouraged me to investigate Catholicism. So this is, um, so I, I went to college in 2009 and eight years later in 2017, I started going to mass. Mm -hmm. Um, we live in a small city in Iowa, which has about 130,000 people. There are about a dozen Catholic parishes. I went to 11 of those parishes and was not very impressed. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess it was hard for me to see what the difference was between Methodism and Catholicism, because I mean, but the Methodists had better music, but like slightly more liberal really? political positions. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. The, uh, the David Haas experience is quite, uh, it's not wow. really very alluring when you're a, uh, you know, 26 year old man. Nope. Um, <laughs> so I'm kind of, you know, on the fence about it still. And, uh, I learned about the Latin mass in town. So I go there, it's at seven o'clock in the morning. The uh, priest who does it is like a literal wizard. He's this guy who you stand in the same room with him and it's like, you're, you, you feel uncomfortable because he's so holy, mm-hmm. but, um, so I go there and suddenly I see it. I reckon I, I suddenly understand what all this Catholicism stuff is about because the, you know, the priest is facing the altar and the uh, congregation is facing the altar with the priest. And, and, you know, it's like, we're, we're at the foot of the cross, dude. It was really cool. Um, so shortly after that, I started inquiring a little more seriously. And in 2019, after a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears, my wife and I were both baptized Catholic wow. and, um, that's how we came into the church. Nice. So that's uh, how we got to be there. So then how does this lead into founding the gym? Yes. So when I was at the University of Minnesota, I, as a part-time job, was working as a personal trainer in their rec center. Uh, I'd been going to the gym for a couple of years. It was something I liked. So it was a you know interest of mine that helped to pay some bills. Mm-hmm. When I dropped out, it was the only skill that I had. So I continued to do it. And after leaving school, I continued to work as a trainer and eventually had a gym in my basement because um, it's kind of an easy business to start. You know, you get the you get the stuff in your house and you get the nerve to ask somebody to come to your basement to work out. And suddenly that you're you're a private personal trainer. But when I came into the church, uh, people started asking, you know, what do you do? How do you make a living? And so I told them, you know, I've got a gym in my basement. So eventually these guys are coming over. And I have two or three guys and then their, their sons and then their wives and then their families. And after about a year, this is early 2020, I've got probably 12 people from the parish all coming to my house to work out and things are going pretty well. And after a few more months, my wife kind of pulls me aside. She's like, this is a lot of people coming and going from our house all day. So maybe we should uh, take it outside so what I ended up doing was uh, we rented this big garage and that became the gym. And after a little while, the business model changed because I started to realize that I wanted to have more people from the church at the gym. Mm-hmm. And the, the cost of personal training is like prohibitively expensive for most people. Yeah. And so I wanted to figure out a way to change the business model to allow more people to come and, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, break my bank too bad because I, I got to pay the bills to cost money to rent a big garage. So I set it up so that the gym is now basically a big clubhouse where everybody pays a membership fee and they can just come whenever they want. And uh, I still coach people and train people and write programs for them because, you know, most of my most of my clientele, they're, you know, people in their 40s with kids or, um, you know, people, uh, you know, married couples and stuff like that. And they're not pro athletes or anything like that. So I'm giving them guidance, but uh, it's, uh, I, I sort of changed it from being my gym to our gym. So we're a big, uh, big, uh, big club, basically. Yeah. And this is one of the things that's really fascinating to me because, you know, on the podcast, I've had a lot of people talk about distributist economic theory and, you know, subsidiarity, all these principles, which are really interesting in the abstract, but 
to live them is another story. Like it's uh, it's super countercultural and it takes a lot of work. And I think it's hard, at least for me, because like, again, I can talk about all these ideas. I can read about them, but to try to live them in a culture where the economy, not just the economy, but the way people associate with each other, the way people think about relationships and building community, um, organizing their, their finances, is just so contrary to this. So like to see someone who's actually living this out with their own business, incorporating their own family, uh, their parish community, et cetera, making it a place, like you said, that's a clubhouse where people belong. I mean, that's super striking. So I, I wanna hear more about like, how do you actually make that happen? How do you live out these kinds of principles in your business? Yeah, so in our in our parish community, something that partially because it's it's a very conservative parish with lots of very uh, paranoid individuals, um, mm. but people have gotten really into this concept of the parallel economy. Mm. And the idea is that when you can buy something from somebody in the parish, whether it's a product or a service, just just do it. And sometimes it costs a little bit more but you can you can sort of sleep well at night knowing that your dollar is going to the right place. So, for example, you know, if I want to buy beef, you know, sometimes I, I have to go to the store, but I know a few guys who have cows. And so once or twice a year, we'll buy a half of a cow or a quarter of a cow, which is several hundred pounds of meat. And that's where we get it is from some guy in the parish. Likewise, we know people with chickens. We know people who have uh, uh, auto repair garages or people who work for other businesses that are owned by guys from the church. And so it's a way to just kind of feel good about where our money's going and to you know, give back to our community in the same way that you give by putting money in the collection plate, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the things that's really attractive to me about the principle of subsidiarity is that um, it facilitates these kinds of meaningful encounters with, with actual people. So it makes the whole process of consumption, of spending money, like a, a human experience. It's not just this purely consume, consumeristic, depersonalized exchange, which you know leaves a lot of us feeling empty after a while. And that's what drives us to keep consuming ultimately, because what we need is that human encounter that is meaningful. But again, if it's if there's no relationship, if there's no human element to the way I'm going about spending my money and engaging in, uh, I don't know, using resources, then it's, I don't know, again, you're empty. So yeah, um, I was going to say, it's like, personally, it's more fulfilling, but also economically, I think it's more empowering because like, if you're running your own business and people you know are patronizing the business, then like, you have more control over your finances. You you have some more stability versus if everything's outsourced to like some major corporation. You know. Oh yeah, and there's, there's there's a freedom in it too because I mean, my my clientele. I mean, I'm I'm not the perfect gym owner. You know, I screw up sometimes, but I I'm fairly confident that you know most of my most of my people from the parish. You know, they're not going to quit on me. They're not going to you know, go complain to my, my corporate boss and, yeah. you know, make me feel, you know, you, you don't feel expendable because, you know, it's, it's, it's your business and it's, it's a, uh, it's really a, it's really an empowering feeling. Something else to consider is that in the current society we live in, we're so used to this idea that stuff that we buy comes from a store. It comes from 
a corporation, you know, you want to, you want to go to the gym, you wait for the planet fitness to pop up on the corner and then you go there because they, that's just, it's where this stuff comes from. And it really uh, grounds you in reality to, to take a moment to recognize that all these products that we buy, they are made of raw materials and they come from somewhere, whether it's a cow from someone's farm or whether it's the guy fixing your car, not just being some, uh, some wagey, but, uh, you know, being your buddy who, you know, and who you trust. Yeah. And I mean, can you tell more about like how, what about working or running a gym where there are these, uh, people with families, with kids running around, like, tell us more about why it's personally fulfilling for you. Like what, what experiences have you had or like, are there any specific things you can share about it? Yeah. So the so something about the gym that is unique is that we have uh, I I basically have an open door policy to people's families. So if somebody wants to come to the gym and you know they've got you know three or four little kids at home, I say bring them along. Who cares? You know, and mm-hmm. sometimes it gets a little crowded, but um, it's uh, it's not so bad. And it's really it's really meaningful for me to talk to, especially some of these moms who have you know five or six children, and they you know they tell me that we feel so safe when we come here. And that that just feels so good to hear. Cause I know that, I know that so many people have weird complexes about going to the gym. It's a really emotional kind of uncomfortable experience. And the, the gym culture doesn't really help with that. Mm-hmm. But for, for these moms who, and, and, you know, I'm a big believer that, that a, a mom of six is like one of the most powerful people in the world. That's like a super, that's like a superhuman person. And so for, to get that kind of compliment from someone like that is super meaningful. Um, we don't have any mirrors in the gym. It's not, this is not a place where, you know, people are super concerned about their appearance. It's more just a way to get people active and motivated and excited, especially these older parents or people in, who are middle-aged who kind of need that, uh, need that extra energy or that extra reason to keep going because because it's hard it's hard being a parent it's hard it's hard doing this stuff day in and day out yeah and i mean when you're talking about like these major corporation gym chains i think on one level when you think about the the business model itself and the experience of uh you know going to one of those gyms again like you can feel how depersonalized the experience is like sure you can get a trainer you can go to classes and maybe you can build a community like that but the whole structure of it like the fact that you there's all this bureaucracy like if you want to change your membership if you're moving like there are all these fees and you have to call an 800 number and you know yeah and then and then the members the members themselves are all walking around with their headphones in and trying to avoid making eye contact with each other you know it's just it's 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 so uncomfortable you know it's something i never liked you know it's part of why i I went from working in a gym to working in my basement is because, you know, the, the, the anxiety that comes with being in this room where you're around all these awkward individuals and you're trying to not get too close to any of them is just really strange. It's really, uh, really yeah. depersonalized for sure. And it's depressing because then the culture um, that it kind of generates around the body, around fitness and health is really distorted because you're creating these super atomized individuals who look at the body now as like, as raw material is like, you know, it really becomes this machine-like process when you go to each part of the gym and you, you work each part of the body. But again, it's like, for what end? Like, is it for the sake of um, some higher ideal or is it just merely um, 
I don't know, something very superficial? Is it something purely vain? Um, and it becomes like when it's this totally atomized experience that turns you into like a cog in a machine that's benefiting these major corporations, it's just depressing and lonely. So to hear about a gym where it's, that's not the way you look at the body, that's not the way you look at the person, like I can just imagine how empowering that is because I know from the times that I've gone to those kinds of gyms, like it's not a happy experience, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, the corporate fitness model is this idea where you, you go to the gym because that's like, it, it should be like brushing your teeth. It should be something that you feel bad if you don't do, but there's no, there's no goal necessarily because they, they give you these conflicting messages, right? You're, you're supposed to go to the gym, but at planet fitness, they give you free pizza. Or, uh, you know, they, they, they tell you that if you work too hard at Planet Fitness, there's an alarm that goes off. Wee, woo, wee, woo. Yeah, you know, the, like the a grunt alarm. machine or yeah, something. It's, it's, which is really strange. And then it, it pushes this idea that um, basically you can live forever and that the, the reason you should work out is to allow you to live longer, which, which is something I am strongly opposed to. Um, you know, I, I work out so I can die faster, but the... Um, the corporate culture is so wrapped up in these things and it really makes you feel um, just these really mixed messages. And the goal of course yeah. is to get, is to keep you subscribed to that membership so that you don't cancel it. Cause you know, you, you don't really want to go, but you feel bad canceling it. Cause then you're, you're not a person who has a gym membership and that's, you know, that yeah. means you're lazy or something. No, the mixed messaging, it's like, it's, it's so conflicting because first of all as you said like there are mirrors everywhere so like they're really pushing you to be super self-conscious and to, and vain egotistical keep staring at yourself and your progress but then like some of the gyms i see that the kind of advertising they have on the screens and on the walls like i see this stuff like oh it's not about how you look it's about how you feel it's about you know just being healthy but it's all all these sentimental kind of signaling but at the end of the day like you know what the um, it doesn't challenge this this understanding of the body as like again raw material that you have to make appealing you have to make marketable and i think this just speaks to the like the cognitive dissonance of neoliberalism itself that it's pushing this idea of like let's be free let's be who we are well, in reality, like we're in the hands of these global corporate elites who are telling us who we are. They're telling us who to be yeah. so that we can spend more money to benefit them. Yeah, it's really it's it's diabolical almost because it's yeah. very it's very it's very much the the way that um, sin makes us into slaves in the same way that these these corporations tell us that we're free to choose from their various products and then they they, you know, use marketing to sort of make us slaves to those products. So we think that we need them just like we think we need to commit sins. And it's, it's very, um, yeah, it's, it sucks. Can you say more though about how like men are specifically targeted by these kinds of marketing campaigns and image and like, yeah, these ideal images, because like on one hand you have this, I guess, I guess we can say a superficial notion of masculinity as like, oh, looking a certain way, having a certain body type. When, I don't know, like when I think about it, like there's nothing truly masculine about it. Like it's kind of emasculating in the sense that like you lose sense of what your body's actually for. Again, like what is this all ordered towards? Oh yeah. And the, uh, the, the cult of aesthetic bodybuilding is very much, is very, is very feminine. It's very wrapped yeah. around this just obsession with, your appearance 
for the sake of how others perceive you. You know, it's, it's about living up to some kind of ideal in order to impress others. You know, it's very, very, very feminine. Um, and something else that men have to deal with is that the standard for a man's body is extremely high. I know that, I know that, that women have body image issues more often yeah. than men do generally, but the standard that a man's body is supposed to be is something that, that is, is, is like the Greek Adonis, you know, it's something that uh, only very few men have achieved and they only sustain for a short period of time. And so, you know, you're, you know, like a six pack ag abs, for example, like almost nobody can get and maintain six pack abs for very, for more than a few weeks at a time. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, you deliberately train for and diet for and, you know, dehydrate yourself for, and it's totally removed from any kind of health or performance aspect. Yeah. But yet that's, that's the gold standard of the corporate fitness model is, you know, come over here and get your six week, six pack abs, whatever, you know, only $60 or, you know, whatever the deal is. And yeah. it's, and it, uh, it, and when, and when you fail, the message is that, oh, well, you failed because you probably didn't try hard enough. You know, it's not because it's unrealistic for you to change your body that dramatically in six weeks. It's because, you know, clearly the program's fine, but you just didn't try hard enough. And so you didn't get the desired result. And that kind of thing contributes to the, the, the Eeyoreism, you know, yeah. the, the, like the, the, oh, I guess I can't do it. I guess I'm just not good enough. And that's the way that so many men feel, you know, so many guys, um, maybe this is, maybe this is more of a Midwestern thing, but you hang out with a group of guys and everybody's overweight because everybody in these States is overweight and they're all just kind of like, yeah, I used to work out, but you know, I just kind of gave up and it's, and it's, it's, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum where you have the, on one side, you have the, uh, the aesthetics obsessed, uh, feminine sort of, uh, divorce from reality ideal. And then on the far side, you have the, the equally sort of emasculine, you know, depressed, giving up sort of ideal. There's no, there's no way to, uh, bridge the gap with the corporate fitness model because they count on that. Yeah, it works. The, the only way to really bridge it is to kind of decide to have a totally different goal when you go to the gym. But yeah. And I mean, I, sometimes I see these guys taking the mirror selfies or like these videos of themselves working out. And I'm just like, what is this? Like, what is happening? <laughs> like, I just, sometimes I sit there and I'm, I wonder like, what is going through your head right now? Like, cause I don't know, like I know some, some people younger than me who, for them, it really is about getting likes on Instagram or wherever they're posting it because first it, it does give them, you know, the rush of dopamine, seeing all those yeah. likes and the, the comments and the little thirst emojis from the girls. Like it's, it's empowering in a, in a superficial way. Uh, it's gratifying, but also some people use it to like actually attract people for like ultimately for sex, I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's kind of a seedy underbelly of the, the uh, fitness world thing is that uh, yeah. on the, on Instagram, especially um, if you post a shirtless picture anywhere, you are going to get men mostly in your in your dms you know asking you for for more pics or whatever or offering to pay you money for various favors and it's and this is so ubiquitous that uh, you know it even has a it even has a nickname you know gay for pay right which is which is what and and so many of these guys you'd be shocked to learn how many of these guys are sustaining themselves this way just uh wow. getting huge amounts of money i mean 
know, I, I, I try to, I really avoid doing shirtless stuff just because, um, you know, I can't stand getting those messages. I had somebody message me once offering to pay to watch me eat food. I was like, that's no, that's really weird. But, but yeah, that's, 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 you know, that's, that's the kind of, those are the kind of weird requests you get. And, and uh, the, uh, the social media aspect kind of creates this expectation that that's what all this is for. You know, everybody who lifts weights has an Instagram where they post their, their weightlifting stuff. And it's not all necessarily bad, but it's, it's often geared toward this false idea that this is how it has to be, that you have to get your validation this way. Yeah. And I mean, it's emasculating first on the level that like, I mean, I guess this is kind of a gross generalization, but in general, men don't seek to be gazed upon. I mean, that's more of a feminine trait to want to be looked at. Um, So like this whole inversion of the male gaze, as they say, I think is super emasculating, but on a deeper level, and it's like, you're doing all this for no substantial purpose. Like ultimately people try to be fit for the sake of one performance in athletics or whatever, or like taking care of their family, like lifting heavy things. But when it's just for, you know, the appearance or for getting likes on Instagram, like it doesn't take you anywhere. It's a dead end. You know, yeah. I just feel bad when I see these people obsessing over it. Cause I'm like, okay. And then what are you going to do? Cause you're going to get old eventually. And then who cares? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's something where nobody can ever be satisfied. You know, there's no yeah. point where you, you're, you're like, okay, I'm fit enough. This is perfect. Something a lot of people would ask me you know, when they first start is, you know, how long, when do I, when do I get to a point where I just like maintain my progress? It's like never, <laughs> because yeah. you're never, you're never, you're never going to be okay with yourself. You know, you have to, you have to get to a point where you just kind of don't care about it. And, um, you know, you have different goals because if you're, if your goal is to achieve your dream body, well, you're, you're never going to get there. Cause if you do get to it, you're going to have decided that it's not good enough. And that some other more unattainable dream is the real goal. So let's go from here into just talking more generally about millennial culture, because, you know, we've been messaging back and forth a lot about how I think in general, a lot of us are afraid of commitment, especially to to things like family, to being committed to a certain place, a particular community. And I think like, you know, we've also talked about the kind of geographical differences because I'm, you know, I'm on the East Coast, I'm in more of an urban area where yeah like it's it's not normal to plant your roots it's not normal to make commitments at a young age especially to marriage or some kind of consecrated life but um and i I think in the midwest probably a little different but i don't know speaking as someone who's in that kind of age bracket what is it like for you living this kind of life like with the family being part of a community running your own business in a culture where that's not really the norm yeah so i'm 31 so that's, um, so uh, I would say it's uh, being this age is very conspicuous because something I've noticed, I noticed right away when I started going to church was that there are lots of 40 year olds, there are lots of 20 year olds, but very few 30 year olds. The, the millennial, there's, there's like a skipped generation that uh, it seems to start and end with millennials, which is very strange to me. Um, I'm not sure what the cause of that is. I could speculate that perhaps we were raised to believe that religion was over, that history was over, and that uh, there was no need for it. And then when 
Gen Z started going to church again and being a little bit more normal. <laughs> we were just sort of left out in the cold with our, you know, holding the bag. Mm. But being um, being a parent especially has been very alienating from uh, people my own age because uh, I know very few people my age who are parents. Um, like like even even in the uh, you know the Latin Mass church community, you know there aren't very many. Uh, there are younger parents, there are older parents, but, and you barely ever see um, support for that kind of thing. So what I mean is that, um, so for example, when uh, our second child was born, so our first child was, was uh, our son, and then we had a daughter, so we had one of each, and the, the number of people who came out of nowhere to be like, oh, that's so perfect, you have one of each, now you can be done. Or I even had one of my great aunts who I had never met before. We're at this family function. And she says, oh, that's so great. You have one of each. Do you think you'll get a vasectomy? Like, like, like who the hell are you? I, I didn't even know who you were five minutes ago. But, and then my, my, my cousin, oh, that's perfect. You got two. I got snipped after we had our two. And it's like the, the, the idea that you would do what you're basically what the Catholic church asks you to do, which is to be be a parent and be open to life is totally foreign to this culture because mm -hmm. you know you're supposed to make your own life you're supposed to plan your family you're not supposed to accept uh you know just kind of trust god and accept what happens so it's been very uh very strange you know i'm thankful to have uh so many other families even if the parents are 10 years older to rely on and to get advice from because i wouldn't find very much from people my age yeah because uh, i i see how much this fear of risk this fear of responsibility at least for me i know a lot of it comes from the way that i was raised and the stuff that i was told like you know as long as you try your best mm -hmm. you know, that's good enough and if you want to quit then you know it's okay or i don't know like if you don't want to go outside your comfort zone like all these kinds of things which are again very comfortable to hear become this dead end um and I just wonder, I don't know, because I like I see how I myself I am caught in this kind of mentality. And it's mm -hmm. it's easier said than done to overcome. But this ideal of bourgeois comfort without responsibility, without risk, without long term commitment, I think a lot of us are unhappy. Like, yeah, we're not fulfilled. And we come up with all these excuses for why we shouldn't have to step outside of our comfort zone or or we cling to these victim narratives of why it's not fair that X, Y and Z. But why do you think it's so hard for a lot of us to not just say like, okay, yeah, like I am unhappy living in this bourgeois type of comfort lifestyle. Why, why don't we, why do a lot of us not take that risk? So we have two problems happening at the same time. The first is that we have an extremely large number of choices. Mm -hmm. And so, so anytime you choose one, you, you put aside many other possible options. And if you're, if you're practicing the Catholic faith, you, you don't get to just undo your choice by getting a divorce or whatever, or getting, a, getting an abortion, God forbid, you know, you, you, you have to stick with it. Mm -hmm. The other problem is that the philosophy of existentialism has shaped our culture so dramatically, this idea that not only do you get to decide the design of your own life, but you have a you if you don't do that, you you failed, you know, it's like you're you have this existential duty to make something interesting out of yourself. And so anytime you make a choice, you have this intense pressure 
that's like, like, oh, I hope you're making the right choice because you only get to do this once. Yeah. But the result is that, you know, you don't ever make the choice. And then you find yourself just sort of holding the bag once again, going into your 30s, going into your 40s, and you're still just doing a job that you don't like all that much and living, you know, living alone with cats and so on, which is what uh, so many people my age end up doing. And they're, they're starting to, uh, you know, I fear for what's going to happen when a lot of my friends end up being 40 years old, single, childless, you know, not happy in their jobs. You know, I can't imagine the existential pain that would come from such a, from such a position. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, the only way to kind of overcome that fear of stepping outside of the comfort zone and taking on risk responsibility. Like I know I need to be surrounded by other people who are going to just walk with me and like encourage me to like keep striving for what is more fulfilling because if it's just by myself, like I can't muster up that courage, that, uh, that strength to do it. And I mean, and ultimately without a belief in something that's transcendent, then, oh, yeah. then there is no point to take on responsibility or take on risk because then there's no promise that when things get difficult, when things get uncomfortable, then that there's some value in it. So I don't know, like I, on one hand, yeah, like I'm critical of how a lot of people I know who kind of feed into this culture, but at the same time, I don't think it's just a matter of like, you need to make the decision to be more responsible. I think people need to support each other. Like people need to accompany each other in life yeah. by ourselves. What are we going to live for? Nothing. Yeah. And the, the, the transcendent ideal is also extremely important. So, I mean, it is true that where I live, it's a little bit more normal for people to get married and settle down, but it's also, it's also the case that, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I made this choice because I wouldn't have made it on my own. I don't think, you know, I think there was divine intervention for certain, but, you know, I, it was, for me, it was, it was an, an irrational choice. It was, yeah. it was, uh, I had, I, I felt like I wanted to commit to something, you know, I, and in this case, it was, it was being married, you know, cause I had been an atheist for most of my adult life and I'm about 24 and I found myself, you know, married and I thought, you know, gosh, these things that I claim to believe for the last 10 years all contradict the choice in life that I'm making. So I have to either, I have to either choose to be married or choose to be an atheist. I can't really do both. And irrationally, purely based on my feelings, you know, I, I chose to be married. And that was a choice that, you know, drastically shaped the rest of my life, right? And it was the same thing with uh, becoming Catholic, I guess. You know, I, if I had tried to come up with a completely logical, consistent, self-contained argument for why I was becoming Catholic, I probably wouldn't have been able to. But I just kind of decided, you know, yeah, I, I think I'll do it in a moment of irrational inspiration. And that's something that, uh, something that you know, is, is uh, another element of being a millennial is this sort of crippling self-examination at all times of all the choices we're yeah. making, you know, this desire to be able to explain and to reason and to have a perfect argument for everything that you do instead of just yeah. instead of just doing it. And I think that's the downside of like this super subjectivist worldview that a lot of us are raised with that like if everything's about me and my feelings, then what ends up happening is become I become super self-conscious of myself, super self-referential. And then I'm always conscious of my flaws and how I screw up. And I think when we're taught to think from like, if the point of departure is something objective, something outside of me, then like 
my flaws and my limitations are not that big of a deal anymore because then I'm not just looking at myself. I'm looking, I lo I'm looking at my relationship with what's happening in, in my life, like whether it's the people or my work, whatever, you know, because otherwise, like just looking at myself, it's crippling because I'm going to make a mess all the time, you know? Oh, but, yeah. And we're, we're forced to confront at all times our own limitations, yeah. which um, they'll never go away. Yeah, and which which we're we're sort of raised to believe, not necessarily by our parents, but by all the all the media that has been so popular throughout our lifetimes. This idea that uh, we're like the protagonists in our own Harry Potter novel, and whatever, and everything is going to turn out okay if we just try to do the right thing. And often they don't because you and I are not Harry Potter; we are mere mortals, and we uh, we have to make choices and we have to cope with the flaws that are built into us that god gave us to to give us direction really yeah so before we wrap up i did want to talk about mishima how do you say mishima mishima i've heard i've heard i've heard mishima mostly mishima okay so i well i mean i found him because a lot of people i follow for some reason just started posting about him and i had no idea who he was <laughs> i'm not it's a super uh what do you call an asia file I'm I'm just not super familiar with like Japanese mm. culture. Not not that I have anything against it, um, but it's just not really within my cultural ambit. But I decided to give him a read. I read Sun and Steel. I read some of the short stories from Acts of Worship, mm -hmm. and it's fascinating because he speaks to this whole like I don't know this aestheticism from a, a very like japanese perspective but like you see him borrowing some catholic imagery some like i guess some paganish stuff you could say um, oh, yeah. a little bit fascistic at times but um i don't know just this understanding of the body like it's an aestheticism that's not that has substance behind it like he's definitely saying something even though ultimately yeah like i think he it could fall empty. I don't know, but I'm curious to hear your point of view, especially as somebody yeah. into fitness and that. Yeah. So, so Mishima um, had a huge impact on, on my life for sure. Um, so I encountered him twice. So the first time I encountered Mishima was in college in when I was working at, in the research lab, I, uh, I took this class on psychology of gender and sexuality and uh, Mishima comes up suddenly and he's presented to me as this uh, this gay bohemian mentally ill person who's oppressed by the traditional Japanese society, which is how he viewed himself for a large portion of his life. But then I encountered him shortly after in like radical right wing chat rooms, you know, as this this based fascist samurai warrior and both those people are Mishima and they sort of both are part of his story, which is, which is what makes him so interesting that he can't be boxed in so easily. But right. so he's, he's kind of like a millennial before there were millennials. He's this person who he's, he's kind of bookish. He's a, a, a geeky, young, weak child who, you know, is kind of, you know, spends too much time with his mom. He's shut inside. He reads books and writes books and he becomes very obsessed with this idea that he is, um, you know, different from everyone else. And he starts writing poetry and plays and books that are all sort of centered around all the ways that he's different from other people. Mm -hmm. But as he gets older, he looks back on his life and he recognizes that uh, this period of time 
he was very disconnected from reality. And part of that is that he was disconnected from his own body. Mm-hmm. And so it was like he used his essays and his writing as a way to sort of talk about high concepts and about tragedy and about beauty and about death. But his body could not possibly understand any of those things because he had the body of someone who who shied away from any kind of heroic virtue. And he says in Sun and Steel, you know, he talks about how um, this chapter of his life where he's basically, you know, going to gay bathhouses and his life revolves around the bohemian uh, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. He says he was surrounded by people who who physically did not contain any of the heroic virtues. And he mm-hmm. you know, says that they're, they're either flabby and overweight or they have protruding ribs and an overly nervous sensibility. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and, uh, you know, pale skin that hasn't been touched by the sun. And, he, and so he, he has a couple experiences where he's in the military and he jumps out of an airplane and he is on a boat and stuff. And, he, and he, he has one where he's carrying a Shinto shrine and he just sort of has this overwhelming experience of his body as being not just a vessel that carries his mind, but as a part of him and something with which he can experience the divine. And it's really powerful, especially in the West, because we are so corrupted by the uh, mind-body dualism yeah. that uh, has affected our philosophy so much to hear somebody talk like that. And so he comes up with this idea in his head that, you know, if I'm going to be, you know, do anything heroic or noble in my life, I have to somehow combine my body and my mind, which I have separated for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. I was going to say, like, I related a lot when I was reading him because I don't know, I, I would never bring myself to actually follow his philosophy or do what he did. But mm-hmm. I think this whole idea of like being someone who feels emasculated, disempowered because of, you know, like you're very um, introspective, you're into reading, very bookish, afraid, you feel like you're on the outside, you're excluded, um, but you never like do anything with the ideas, you never do anything with the words that inspire you. So then like him taking his body seriously was a way of like putting the words into action, like letting them become flesh, we could say. And I think what's also interesting is like he he embodies this um, certain asp certain like gay archetypes which are not definitely not politically correct because on one hand there's the Freudian kind of thing where like you know like overly attached to the mother never really embraces his own malehood so like and you can see in the short stories how alienated he felt from these boys and how you see how that alienation turns into this like eroticizing them. But also like the whole, uh, they they call it the homofascist kind of archetype, but you see people like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you see this in Nazi Germany somewhat, but you also see in people like Milo Yiannopoulos who, you know, there are certain elements of like, I guess, traditional gay culture that can become very fascistic because ultimately it's this exaltation of the masculine, this devaluing of the feminine an ultimate way you know? yeah that's that's something that the the pop culture sort of removes that aspect of gay culture this idea they they, they basically try to portray gay men as being really feminine but they yeah. they neglect that the 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 gay culture especially of like the 70s and the 80s like why why is there such a problem 
with sexually transmitted diseases and things like that in the gay community of San Francisco in the 1980s. It's because you have a bunch of men with lots of testosterone flying through yep. the air who do with absolutely no reason to restrain any of their urges, right? Yep. Like it's, it's, it's like it's masculinity to the most extreme possible degree in, in, uh, in it's like, like Dionysian masculinity in yep. the absolute extreme. But uh, the, the pop culture, of course, tries to restrain that. And it says, no, 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 there we're, uh, gay people are just like straight people, except they happen to like people of the same sex. And so now they're going to really get married and, and all that stuff. It's really, it's really, it's really strange. And I, uh, you know, I, it's, it's good to see that a lot of, um, a lot of people, even, even though, you know, I don't agree with their choices necessarily. There are a lot of uh, gay people who reject that. They say, no, we want to be different because we are different. You know, we're not, we don't fit into this because, you know, we're not, we're not just women in men's bodies. You know, we are, we are gay men. That's that's who we are. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that uh, sort of uh, identifying yourself that way. I think that's definitely a, a kind of a postmodern thing. But uh, you know, I think that's that's the superior choice to being a a bougie uh, gay couple. You know, living in the suburbs. Yeah, that's just boring too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so Joe, thank you for coming on. Uh, anything you want to plug before we go? Uh, well, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, St. Michael Barbell. I'm happy to uh, follow. I'm usually, I usually post my schizo rants on my story. So I'm happy to uh, entertain conversations with uh, people. Uh, it's been uh, really cool being on my favorite podcast. Um, the, uh, uh, I've lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's getting late. It's late, late for me. I go to bed at like nine o'clock shortly after the kids. So everyone can go follow you on IG. And uh, again, thanks, Joe, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Yeah.